It's the 1st of July, 2018, and this is episode 372 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Hey, guys. Thanks for being here today. The gang's all here. I'm so glad we're all back together. And we've got a lot to discuss. Yeah, it's going to be fun. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about the first in kind of a series of BIPs or Bitcoin improvement proposals. And we're also going to be throwing Bolts or the uh, Lightning Network improvement proposals as well into the mix over the next couple of months with an intent of really sort of capturing what's happening in Bitcoin and, and sort of the related technology, what's coming, what are the challenges, you know, and what are people within the technical community really talking about at this point, since it's been a while since we focused on really anything other than sort of news or politics, which is, of course, not very fun relative to this sort of more technical stuff. Today, though, before we get into that, since the beginning, people have talked about how Bitcoin is this anti-fragile system. And even in the event of regional or global catastrophes, Bitcoin might be set back, but would continue functioning or at the very least keep a strong record of who owned what under nearly any circumstances. Today, in this first topic, we're going to explore this idea a little bit more and discuss a few different scenarios and the challenges that Bitcoin could face in sort of that situation and what advantages it has. The first one that comes up sort of a lot is the idea that an EMP could happen, you know, an electromagnetic pulse that or, or any sort of technology disrupting event, right, that makes it so that at least in one region of the world, Suddenly, computers gone, internet gone, you know, and there is the potential for some of those computers to still be alive after this thing is over. You know, you've got sort of the bunker scenario or you've got the hardened installation scenario. But for 99.9% .9 of people, this is effectively the end of technology until the problem is solved at a systemic level within the area that's affected. I'd like to first offer some framing to this, which is anti-fragile, just like the word secure, is not something that could be measured in absolute terms. It's not either anti-fragile or fragile. It's a range, and it's only relevant to measure it against other technologies. Therefore, when we say, is Bitcoin anti-fragile, I think the most interesting question is, more or less anti-fragile than what? And I think a fair comparison would be more or less anti-fragile than our existing payment systems and counting both cash and various forms of fiat digital money, such as credit cards that go with that. And so I think that's the fair comparison. Otherwise, there's really no point in saying whether it's anti-fragile or not. Fair enough. So in the case of the regional scenario, let's assume that the US has some sort of issue and we lose access to the internet, we lose kind of all of the computers that are not protected and that sort of thing. Definitely, that would be disruptive, certainly for the area that is impacted. But for the system as a whole, kind of what does that look like? Well, I think the bottom line is the if you let's again, let's look at cash. So without electricity, all point of sale systems, which are not in bunkers, but are in the various stores that you might want to use, all the things you need to buy groceries or pump gas or things like that, those are gone. So both communications and electricity to run point of sale is, is not going to be working for weeks. And of course, you know, when people talk about EMP, they talk about the most apocalyptic scenario, which is some kind of low yield nuclear detonation in the upper atmosphere. But you can have much simpler scenarios where you have a massive solar flare. And that has happened in history. It hasn't happened in our modern electrified era, but we're overdue for one. 
Uh, and that would fry most electronics, most retail electronics in a very broad radius around which side of the planet that hit. So in that case, ATMs are gone. So you can't withdraw money. So whatever cash you have on you, that's it. Your debit cards don't work. Your credit cards don't work. Your phones don't work. Now compare that to Bitcoin. Well, again, in that area, your phone doesn't work and your various other devices that you might be storing Bitcoin on don't work. If you have some kind of backup, maybe you could restore it on a device that you have protected. I keep, for example, my hardware wallet inside a Faraday cage, inside the Faraday bag. So that would work. So I would have at least one device that had Bitcoin on it that still worked. So let's talk about that. So in this scenario, right, so you've managed to keep your device alive, but most everything else is not really working at that point. Is that really much better than just having your passphrase written down, you know, like, you know, on a piece of paper or something? Because it seems like, you know, we're not concerned about balances evaporating here, right? The rest of the network would keep track for the area that, you know, is in the dark effectively. Would a hardware wallet help you in that scenario, or is it really just another way of storing private keys as you would, you know, on a piece of paper? Well, if I might jump in here, the great thing about Bitcoin is that because the record of all the transactions, you know, the ledger, the blockchain is decentralized, there is a better chance of a copy of it existing somewhere. So whether that's offline stored on even on paper or something like that, you could theoretically store the blockchain on paper and it could survive something like an EMP. And then the location of all the Bitcoins is recorded in the blockchain. And so even in the event of something that wipes out all or most of the technology on Earth, <laughs> and if Andreas is storing his hardware wallet in a Faraday cage, you know, you could probably bet that someone is storing a hard drive with a copy of the blockchain in a Faraday cage as well, or in an EMP resistant location or something like that. Andreas is storing a copy of the blockchain on the hard drive in a Faraday cage also. <laughs> right. And that's the great thing about the distributed nature of the Bitcoin ledger is that, you know, with a bank, you have centralized records of who has what balance in what account. And there aren't copies of that all over the world. They're not resistant to an event like this. But Bitcoin does have that insurance policy, if you will, where copies of it are distributed everywhere. And hopefully there's more than one. So a consensus could be reached, even if some of them are wiped out. With a bank, you just don't have that. Could you imagine a uh, post-apocalyptic world that may be EMP-based or solar flare-based, where everything in society gets moved to blockchain in 20 years, an EMP sort of blankets us in darkness. And then after 10 or 15 years, we rediscover a full backup of all the blockchain. And it'll be like the Enlightenment all over again when they rediscovered Greek thought and philosophy and literature. And it just created a new wave of, uh, of society. Anyway. Okay, I think we're going a bit off the tangent <laughs> here, primarily because of this idea of going directly to a, a EMP wipes out all technology on the planet, post-apocalyptic scenario. I don't think that's a useful scenario to even consider. First of all, because EMPs are localized events. Even if you had a massive solar flare, it would hit the side of the planet that looks at the sun. The other side of the planet would be mostly fine. So th these are not all planet-encompassing events. And it's not really useful to examine those scenarios because not only are they unlikely, but the impact is so... There's, you know, Bitcoin is the least of your concerns then. A more realistic scenario is a localized electricity failure, a localized technological failure. And you can have that even on a continent scale. So you could say North America has a very wide disruption of electricity that lasts months. 
you know, what does that do to money when it's digital or money when it's on the blockchain? And to be fair to banks here, they do not ignore risks like this. There are data centers with shielding that would survive an EMP, with generators that would survive any kind of electrical disruption like that. There are backups in mountains, in vaults that are, will survive these things. The question is, how quickly can you bring the infrastructure back and how distributed these resources are? And I think that's where a technology like the Bitcoin blockchain is more anti-fragile. You can bring it back faster, primarily because the resources to bring it back are distributed in the hands of thousands of individuals who each have a different plan and a different resourceful approach, a different location, and who would bring it back. Just the other day, I was at a ham radio disaster preparedness exercise, which is where they operate amateur radio in the uh, 20 and 40 meter bands under conditions where they have had a complete loss of electricity. So this is operating out of a mobile trailer in the woods with antennas set up temporarily and generators. And then they try to see how many contacts they can make in 48 hours with that radio set up. So, you know, this is something that a lot of people practice. And it's interesting because you could theoretically even use the system like that to do Bitcoin transactions. So it seems like in this particular type of circumstance, the Bitcoin system versus the sort of traditional financial system in banking actually has the same sorts of weaknesses and the same sort of get things back up to speed plan. It's just a question of who gets to enact that plan. In the case of like the banking system, Ultimately, there's very clear owners of that information. It's the bank. And so if the bank winds up being completely compromised, and that's problematic, whereas on the Bitcoin side, because you have so many individual people in this distributed system that have their own copies of that information, you could have most of the network fail, most of the participants die or go away or lose all of their data or whatever. And you'd still have this subset that is really hard and able to get it back out. Now, deploying it might actually be more difficult, right? Uh, because you could potentially have different copies of the ledger that have been updated by, you know, different people who made transactions on their little sub part of the network that don't make it to the rest of the network. And that sort of brings us into our next topic. In the book 1984, there's Oceania and Eurasia, and Oceania and Eurasia have always been at war. And basically, as far as the citizenry is concerned, they don't talk to each other and there's no communication, no sort of any connection between the actual people, except for people who are in this kind of resistance type of thing. So in that sort of scenario, you know, like, let's assume that somehow that happens, right? But but how? I mean, in, even in North Korea, they have the ability to receive radio interception, like radio communications. Like, I, I, I don't I don't know in what context someone could actually create a full message resistant wall between nations because it, it doesn't even work in North Korea. My attempt here is to use this as a way to talk about the ability to have two distinct networks that are both Bitcoin and which might connect back to each other. So if you have a different way to talk about this, I'm totally down for that. Well, I mean, you don't need a complete blanket ban on communication. You, you could simply just have a, a great firewall between the two networks. You could have, and North Korea is a great example, but even China could take it to that extreme where within the country, the Western Bitcoin is banned and banned with enormous penalties. So, you know, if you're found holding or trading in it, you get shot, right? So that's a scenario you can imagine in North Korea. 
not in China, but same kind of thing. And now imagine that at the same time there's a domestic version that arises. Perhaps it's a fork from before the two were disconnected, or perhaps it's the legal version and they're disconnected from each other. In the case that you're talking about there, Andreas, ultimately we have two different networks, right? And it might be that there there was a fork, or it might be that there's a disconnection, but it doesn't seem like those things could come back together and become the same network or share things between them. I think you have a more interesting scenario, which is the possibility of doing cross-chain trades, being able to do transactions across the two chains, regardless of the fact that they're separate chains. And you can do that with atomic swaps. You could do that with a Lightning Network overlay. You could do that with some kind of intermediary with escrow, kind of a shapeshift-like system. And it's interesting to imagine that scenario because eventually, even though the two were separate networks, even though they had no common blockchain. There would be the possibility of trade between them. So, is this why people are putting nodes in space to try to avoid all these problems? Well, you, you certainly wouldn't be putting a node in space to avoid a solar flare. True. True. No one's actually putting nodes in space so far. Although there were some proposals to do that by Jeff Garzik. Instead, what we've seen so far is leasing commercial communication channels on commercial communication satellites. To transmit blocks and transactions so that they can be received by a dish, and what that allows you to do is have a node in a country that's truly isolated, and have a node in a way that's very easy to conceal. I mean, you can put a satellite dish which you、uh, used to have for television, and you could convert that and put it in your garden, surrounded by bushes, and it's invisible from everywhere. And that can receive blocks and transactions, so you can keep your node synced, which means you can validate transactions even though you have no other means of communicating. Right, and that that sort of gets us to、um, another concept that I don't believe anyone's done yet, but I'm I'm fairly excited to see happen. In sort of a true extreme example of uncensorable communication, you could use radio to use the moon itself as a satellite. Really interested. How do you use radio to use the moon itself as a satellite? So before man invented a satellite, we had the good old God-given one called Lady Luna. It's the notion that she's really good at reflecting light, or you know, as good as anything else in the vacuum of nothing can be. So poetic! I love this. <laughs> Light's just a form of radiation, as is anything else. And an EME is an Earth-Moon Earth bounce, and it's a type of radio communication where you just blast the space towards the direction of the Moon with a radio wave, and then a very small percentage of that scatters back. To Earth, and if you're talking about sort of stupid、uh, amounts of electricity,、um, you could actually use it as a method of、uh, propagating signals to quite literally everywhere that can see the moon. Yeah, although、uh, as poetic as that is, Jonathan, there's something a lot simpler, which is the ionosphere, and you can bounce again. What I was observing the other day at this ham radio contest that we're doing. 20 meter and 40 meter wave, and that bounces off the ionosphere. So the ionosphere is this part of the atmosphere that's charged, and it reflects electromagnetic signals all around the world, depending on conditions, depending on night versus day. It's more reflective at night, I believe. And you basically bounce a signal that that bounces between the ionosphere and sometimes even the surface of the Earth, and again up to the ionosphere, and can go all the way around the planet under good conditions. Or you can use a series of relay nodes. To relay it from continent to continent, but it's fairly easy to get from one side of the continent to another or across an ocean by bouncing a signal off the ionosphere. Not as romantic, just as effective. What created this whole side tangent was that the last scaling Bitcoin, there was a presentation 
And I believe there's even a startup working on Bitcoin transactions over radio. So if you're interested in ham radio or radio communication, while all of these are sort of fun pontifications to that end, you actually could start playing with these ideas now and do a Bitcoin over the ionosphere transaction. I talked about that back in uh, 2013, the idea that once money becomes simply a, a data type, then any mechanism of communication can transmit Bitcoin transactions and you can encode Bitcoin transactions in any form. Uh, one of the examples I used was as emojis in a Skype message. You can print them and put them in the newspaper using keywords in classified ads or on Craigslist or on eBay or embed them in videos and images that you post on Facebook. And you can also transmit them over radio using techniques as simple as Morse code or some other encoding like that, or more sophisticated techniques like packet radio. But you could also just read English words to someone who's listening and writing them down. There are myriad ways that you can encode information. In fact, infinite ways you can encode information. And once money becomes simply information, you can transmit it over anything that can communicate any other information. I was going to say, I, I remember us talking about this on the show and also hearing Andreas talk about it Yeah, very early, as early as 2013. And I actually believe that there have been people who have done Bitcoin transactions over ham radio, for example. I remember we talked to somebody who was actually trying that out. I would be interested in hearing other creative ways that people have encoded Bitcoin transactions. I mean, I know there isn't really the need for it right now because we do have a functional internet and haven't been hit by a solar flare lately. <laughs> I think it's like a great thing to try. And I'm curious about what our listeners have experimented with. But don't say Morse code smoke signals because we already thought of that. And and to that end, there's been a one of my favorite examples of this in all time was the HD DVD key back in, I think, 2007, where HD DVD and Blu-ray were fighting and they said that they were unhackable. And then someone discovered the private key to decrypt the DRM for HD DVD. They posted it on dig.com. And then they got a cease and desist claiming that the private key to the DRM was intellectual property, which then had the internet community go crazy and re-describe the private key in a thousand different ways. People did them as paintings where the actual key was the hash values of the colors in the painting. Just all these different, like, if, if you want to go look at all the crazy ways you can represent a private key, that was a, a very fun time period where people were getting very cute about that. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. When I was a teenager in Greece, I did pirate radio. At the time, there was no FM radio stations. Uh, th there were a few from the government, and they were playing patriotic band music. Blech. So we, um, we were playing Billboard Top 40. You can guess who was more popular. And in order to build our radio stations, we couldn't import the electronics or easily buy them, especially at first. So what we did was we scavenged vacuum tubes from the back of old televisions, and we drove them directly at 220 volts and amplified signals, and we hand-tuned the coils and capacitors in order to transmit in the FM band and hand-built the antennas. So we built basically FM transmitters from scrap electronics by hand from scratch using things that were in other electronic devices around us. And they worked. They didn't work very well, but we could reach five or six miles range with these handmade little radios. 
And you you can see that kind of idea of necessity being the mother of invention in places like Cuba or Venezuela, um, where people repurpose things. Like they take uh, in Cuba, I, I watched this fantastic documentary where they take the the motor that runs a washing machine and they convert it to something that powers a bicycle, or they use a bicycle and the motor from a washing machine to spin wool or to make a knife sharpener or whatever. And these repurposing kind of maker communities emerge in places where you can't find other basic materials. So I think one of the reasons that Bitcoin is anti-fragile is because it has a very broad, very diverse community of users who will each have a motivation to get back online and fix things and have a myriad different ways of doing so. I also think that an aspect of the anti-fragility of the signal in Bitcoin comes down to the entanglement of a node from a miner. And, and should there ever be a situation where running a full node becomes an exceedingly costly venture, I could see a pretty quick consensus around finally determining some way of compensating nodes for routing transactions. And then you'd very quickly see you know, a market of supply and demand for that. That would never be shut down. So Oceania and Eurasia each have their own fork of Bitcoin. The war ends. Both forks have different balances because of all the transactions. Do we have two Bitcoins forever? Is there any way to recombine these things? Or, or is it just Bitcoin East and Bitcoin West competing now that they've both had a chance to sort of mature and become de facto standards within their own cultures? I mean, the, the only balance changes would be those who have been initialized by other people, unless, you know, we're talking about some sort of like replay attack. Wouldn't that just be exactly what happened with Bitcoin Cash? It would. It would be exactly what happened with Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum Classic. If consensus can't be reached, then there's a fork. And it doesn't matter. And then you set up an exchange so you can exchange one to the other and trade continues. It doesn't matter. So they're all sort of cryptocurrencies and compatible in that same way that we see all cryptocurrencies being compatible. It's just in this case, both of them have their own sort of regional use case, which means that unlike many of the other ones that are out there right now, which are sort of speculative or, or different types of use cases besides money, you could literally it's 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 very analogous actually to the US dollar and the euro. If they didn't trade against each other for years and years, and then they did trade against each other, it wouldn't actually matter that they hadn't for years and years because the information is out there. And you'd be able to determine a market price. It's basically what you're saying, Andreas. Well, I mean, the, the, the dollar was literally invented to go to war with the pound. Right? Like, we went to war with England and needed another currency to go to war with them with. When you have a fork like that, you know, keep in mind that if you have a common origin, then effectively both sides of the geographic divide will hold coins on both sides of the fork. And so when you reconverge, you'll be able to, again, trade, assuming that you weren't able to before, you'll be able to trade your other fork, your Bitcoin East versus your Bitcoin West, your Bitcoin North versus your Bitcoin South or whatever. So it's, it's again, it's very similar to what we've seen with the Bitcoin Cash fork and the other airdrops. If Bitcoin Cash was isolated from Bitcoin for a while and you couldn't have any kind of interaction between them or exchange. Everybody would just sit on their holdings, and then when, when they could access the other chain again, they'd start trading them. Avoiding like catastrophic failure states for Bitcoin, emergencies are important because it's all about the ability in the here and now from the event that occurred. If there was a blackout, if there was a sort of issue, and I had a large amount of my or all of my money in Bitcoin, 
what like would I then have to wait several days or a couple of weeks for the you know hash rate to fix or the energy to come back online before I could even send a single transaction to get my money out like or or I guess is that like like you should keep money in a lightning channel so that if block times go up past you know an hour to three days, you could still have liquidity with your Bitcoin? Like, is that like the disaster preparedness that people should have? I mean, I think it's a lot simpler than that. You could always use physical tokens to exchange Bitcoin. You can, uh, for example, store some of your Bitcoin on a paper wallet or an open dime or other physical device, and you can exchange that as currency. So I can give you an open dime that you can check the balance of or a paper wallet that you can check the balance of and it has the face value of whatever's on it. So that leads me kind of nicely into our next scenario. Jonathan, the reason why we're talking primarily here about things that are sort of more extreme or kind of extreme examples of these scenarios is because I think that it's pretty clear that if there's a short term or a highly localized problem, then it really doesn't change how Bitcoin gets used for the vast majority of the users. And even for the users who are affected, really their best move is just to sit there and wait for it to be over because it's going to be over. So really the the conversation that we're having today is partly about that, but I think it's more about, okay, so let's assume that things go absolutely crazy in some factor. What changes about Bitcoin? How does it get used differently? And so with that in mind, let's talk about if space aliens were to invade. Uh, <laughs> this is sort of a, a type of controlled scenario. Like let's assume that they invade, they take over, they don't shut down technology, but they monitor all communications and they monitor everything that happens anywhere in the world. So Bitcoin's still exists, but now it's become incredibly dangerous to actually make on-chain transactions in any sort of way that can be tied back to you. And Andreas, you brought up the uh, idea of uh, sort of physical Bitcoins. You talked about open dime, you talked about paper wallets. There's another one, which is the old Cassatius coin model, which was physical Bitcoins using tamper evidence seals that have face value so that you don't need to check on the blockchain. You can check on the blockchain, but the tamper evidentness of it and assuming that there's trust in the people who are doing the issuing and it's hard to counterfeit and all those things. That actually is really interesting because when you're talking about transacting Bitcoin, right? We're talking about transferring the ownership of certain chunks of Bitcoin from one public key to another public key. So I send to you, we're transferring from my public key to your public key. But if I was to give you a physical Bitcoin, like a Cassatius coin back in the day, that actually is a transfer of Bitcoin, but it doesn't involve any sort of on-chain transaction or on-chain record change at all. Because what's happening actually is that the physical Bitcoin is the wallet. And so rather than making a transaction where you send Bitcoin from one wallet to another, you're literally giving the person the wallet. And so you can kind of achieve that sort of cash-like thing we were talking about earlier using this type of mechanism. As far as like the cash approach goes, it seems like something like that winds up being safe. But, you know, are, are we back to talking about, you know, like you're talking about like Morse code and smoke signals and just like different unconventional ways to communicate the same types of information? Well, I mean, that's OpenDime does exactly that as a hardware USB stick. But again, it's a it's a hardware tamper proof device that has a single wallet on it. The only difference is that you can make them in any denomination that you want. And then you, you could possibly, you know, inscribe the denomination on the face of it and anyone can check it with a the device. There's a lot of variations on this theme. 
And that would be one way. I, I mean, I think the, the scenario is ridiculous, quite honestly. Of course. Um, but uh, y- yes. <laughs> because, you know, uh, you, you guys go ahead and, and join the resistance against the alien race that just managed to cross intergalactic space and invade this planet. Because as far as I'm concerned, they're as close as possible to a real god as could exist. And I would probably collaborate. I would be like, teach me everything you know alien overlords don't you think the aliens are going to be interested in cryptocurrency as well like they're going to want it for themselves right, right? exactly so I, I i would at that point i would introduce myself as the author of mastering bitcoin and say hey. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't beat them join them i think the only novel thing about humanity in an intergalactic level is the weirdness that it possesses outside of that i don't see any resource or mineable intrigue that we have all right, so continuing along our train of uh, various apocalypses, another one that is sort of a little bit of a different take is the zombie apocalypse, right? Uh, so in a, in the kind of zombie apocalypse scenario, a lot of times you see power continue, you see sort of infrastructure continue to exist because it isn't destroyed, there's no EMP to take it down. Eventually it winds up, you know, all falling apart because nobody is maintaining this sort of thing anymore. But what happens sort of first is you wind up with all of these highly regionalized networks right that don't necessarily have connections between each other because the trunks are no longer being maintained but are also like with a barter economy often emerges in that kind of scenario that's right yeah at least when we see it in movies and tv usually people are trading cigarettes and alcohol and things like in toilet paper for uh food <laughs> right they're trading things that have value to them at that point and barter often kind of becomes the thing so let's assume for a second that this sort of scenario emerges and then civilization starts to recover right and the zombie thing kind of ends but you still have all of these regional networks that need to wind up connecting back this actually you know given the conversation we had about um, sort of the Eurasia Oceania scenario, it seems like maybe I know the answer to this one already. But I was I've been trying to think about in what scenario are double spends most likely to be a problem. And I could see it happening in a scenario where you have people these different regional networks that are using Bitcoin still and using their own sort of little cordoned off regional version of it because they don't have a connection to others. And on the one side, you'd have the ability for people to move between these different networks, taking their credentials with them and potentially double spending at each one. And on the other side, you could have almost a service being provided by people who bring updated copies of the blockchain from one of these regional networks into another regional network and allow the balances to be sort of updated on both sides. So uh, again, like I'm <laughs> looking for excuses to talk about where could something like double spends be a problem in one of these type of disaster scenarios or what other types of interesting things that we haven't really talked about or thought of should we talk about or think about? No, they're not a problem because double spends in that scenario with network isolation simply become forks. And that's exactly how you resolve it. You essentially fork the network. So you would end up having regional forks that are completely separate. Within each regional fork, you can't double spend. Between them, you can. And so the total value of the currency is divided between the various forks, presuming that they have the same rules continue. And you just trade within them. doesn't change anything. Andreas, do you differentiate between forks that are intentional and planned versus forks that are sort of just incidental because that's what the network winds up doing? Because I sort of think of those things as a little different. I think of one as an upgrade path and one as like a sort of a temporary fail state. How do you think about them? If they result in network partition with one of the sides continuing, then they're not an upgrade. So whether they were intentional or not doesn't really matter. The end result is the same. You end up with two surviving chains. 
And so I don't distinguish between two surviving chains which happened on purpose or two surviving chains which happened by accident. If one of the chains survives long enough to diverge sufficiently, it, there's no reconciling it, and then you have a permanent fork. EasyDNS is a domain name provider and registrar that shares our values. Flexibility, free speech, and control without lock-in. EasyDNS helps you meet your individual needs as the Swiss Army knife for domain names since 1998. Outspoken defenders of privacy, due process, and great service, the folks at EasyDNS are long-term, enthusiastic supporters of the Bitcoin movement as well as this program. Please support our sponsor and head over to EasyDNS.com where you can handle all your domain needs and pay with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, or Ethereum. So when you're thinking about domains or hosting, think EasyDNS.com. Okay, so the last kind of scenario that I want to talk about here is the butt Skynet scenario, which is the one that came up a lot in the early days, right? When people, you know, like you talk about AI, or you talk about, you know, the sort of technology that can bridge the gap between like the whole world. And people are like, but the Terminator. There's 21E8 in the blockchain, man. 21E8. To make this a slightly a little more grounded, there's a book called Superintelligence, which is a rather comprehensive book, understanding what could go wrong with AI. And one of the better sort of proposals that the current intelligentsia trying to avoid the evil AI overlord is that we create these cryptographically uh, derived tokens of dopamine that give pleasure to the machine. And then we retain as humans, the little dopamine tokens. And that way it's beholden to us because the first super intelligence will basically be a heroin addict. Basically they're saying we need some sort of distributed ledger of cryptographic tokens for pleasure. And, and that will be how we control our slave race of, of AIs. So, you know, if, if you actually do go down the AI rabbit hole, this actually is a sort of conditional state that may not be too far from the truth. I mean, if you set up your AI like that, I can see why it attacks. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's like Rocco's Basilisk or something. Oh, we can't talk about that. You're not supposed to talk about that one, Stephanie. Yeah, but if I talk about it, it might have mercy on me. <laughs> if I'm the one who mentions it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm doing what Andreas is doing with the aliens. With I'm kissing the AI's butt in advance. <laughs> All right. So now we got to explain Rocco's Basilisk. Stephanie, could you... Explain Roscoe's Basculus, because by the way, there are a number of people at Ethereum who would joke that, you know, they were making the Skynet machine, but Roscoe's Basculus is why they'd be okay. Rocco's Basilisk is a, an idea that in the future, there's going to be an AI that's going to uh, essentially destroy humanity or take over. And the paradox is that we will help bring it into existence. And by mentioning it, like you are bringing it into existence in the future. And if you don't like help it, then it can go back, kill you even worse or something. <laughs> As I understand it, it's that one day AI will come about and one day somebody will figure out time travel. And if AI is around at that period, it will be in control of time travel and it will be as punitive as humans and in a maximalizing sort of optimizing situation, it'll retroactively go back in time and help the things that brought it to fruition and marginalize the things that prevented it coming to fruition. So sort of as like a, a redescription of the heaven and hell dichotomy, those who help 
bring about the evil AI are going to be benefited and those who try to fight it are going to be punished at any point in the future or past state of time. So rather than try to fight the evil Skynet, try to be a part of the, the, the manifesting. Right. So the incentive here basically pushes people who think that this might happen, then your best move from a game theory perspective is to help it actually to happen, which is why it's a dangerous idea. Because if people hear about this and then understand that, then it essentially helps bring it into reality. So that, that that is a thing, and now we've talked about it, so we're we're helping it, and there's that. But the reason why I'm bringing up Skynet again is, so assume that we have super intelligent AI that completely understands and can decrypt any sort of communication that happens over any sort of internet-connected anything. And the question here really is, can something like Bitcoin still operate in any sort of functional way, like assuming for a second, like we moved everything to open dimes, right? Like, does that help us? Does it help us to move to entirely offline in that sort of situation? And would it even still work or? Well, so you're bringing up two different things. You're bringing up AI and then you're bringing up like qu quantum decryption, right? Am I, am I mistaken? I'm bringing up total information awareness, right? So like if we can no longer use the internet to transmit this information because it's now identifying then can we still use this type of system or at that point is it time to move to something that has you know more of a focus on anonymity or something like that like i would would something like monero be better in that circumstance or is it just a different flavor of the same problem different flavor of the same problem i'd put all of my bets on dr peter wool writing a bip that defeats ai <laughs> in six lines of c++ In the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking about a number of different BIPs and different sort of technologies that are being built on top of or have already been integrated into Bitcoin in some circumstances. And today we're going to start off with an easy one. It's BIP 176. It's the BIT, BITS, B-I-T-S denomination. And it was uh, authored by Jimmy Song, emerged on the 23rd of December last year. On our recent five-year anniversary episode, we talked about sort of the millibit movement that had happened early on in 2013 and how nothing really happened. Well, BITS and uh, BIP176 is sort of another attempt at that same thing. And it actually did. It's, it's not a technical implementation. There's nothing about the code that actually changes. It's formalizing the idea that one bit is equal to 100 Satoshis. And I believe that means that one bit is one millionth of a bitcoin can somebody confirm that for me <laughs> that's correct i think for background here it's also important to know there are no bitcoin bitcoin is a fictional currency that is built out of 100 million satoshis everything in the bitcoin ecosystem from the code up is denominated in satoshi satoshi is the only unit of account that exists in the bitcoin blockchain just like in Ethereum, the only units of account that really exists is Wei. Everything is denominated in the lowest, smallest possible unit. So Satoshi's, in the case of Bitcoin, 100 millionth. What you see in your wallet when it says you have 0.5 BTC is basically dividing the number of Satoshis you have by 100 million and showing you a floating point number representation of that. And so then if the BTC unit is completely arbitrary and for human consumption only, why not use a different one that's completely arbitrary, but doesn't end up being mostly less than one and using a decimal point, which is confusing to 99% of humans. And instead, use a unit that's closer to Satoshi's, in the case of bits, it's just 100 Satoshi's, 
and one millionth of a Bitcoin. So that, for example, a cup of coffee would be a hundred thousand bits. And that's easier to write down today than 0.0001. The number of Satoshis, right? Like a hundred Satoshis is so much easier for me to think about than thinking about it as 0.00001 Bitcoin. I think that that's the right number of decimal places to accomplish that. Yeah, well, the point is, it's easier to think about whole numbers rather than fractions of a number. And I mean, what makes a whole number and what makes a fraction in sort of everyday prices is going to be arbitrary as the value of Bitcoin changes. And so, yeah, I feel like all of it is a little bit arbitrary. The other part of this is, okay, just thinking about numbers, whole numbers is easier than thinking about fractions. But it gets much harder if you try to do any kind of arithmetic. So adding up to fractions or dividing a fraction in divided by four, for example, in order to split it between four friends, because you just got a bill from the restaurant. You know, how many people can do 0.5 divided by four is 0.125, <laughs> you know, versus 100,000 bits divided by four is 25,000 bits. A, a lot easier for people to handle basic arithmetic in the realm of whole numbers or multiples and large numbers than it is to do in fractions. So I think that's the other rationale behind this. It also has a bit of a deflationary effect. If you think that your coffee costs 0.0001, you might think that's cheap. But if you think of it as 100,000 bits, then you might think that, well, that's quite expensive. Even though it's the exact same number, we're fooled by these uh, numeric tricks. That's why people price things as $3.99 instead of $4, even though there is no substantial difference. Those things are developed by people who do testing and study conversions. So I feel like it'll work itself out, the units. We're still kind of in flux because the price is so volatile or the value of Bitcoin is has been so volatile over the last, well, for its whole history so far. That volatility is probably going to even out. And then we can think about, you know, sort of maybe finalizing some units. I think, in fact, we passed that moment. Once it went over a thousand US dollars, then pretty much all of the units you encounter in daily life for basic interactions and, and, and transactions become fractions. And at that point, I think it's imperative that we move this unit. It doesn't matter if you have volatility. In fact, you can manage the volatility because you can do the math, the arithmetic, more easily if you have a smaller unit. So I remember thinking a lot about this back in 2013 when Bitcoin first hit 1,000. And I was a, a very big proponent of BitSense. And the idea is for a good chunk of the world, like South Korea and Japan, they don't have a fractional increment. They just talk about things in the thousands. And right now, let's say Bitcoin's about six grand, a millionth of that is about, what is it, six hundredth of a penny. A Korean won in dollars is about one hundredth, what is it, one thousandth, excuse me, of a penny. So it's around the same range that if we were to start denominating cents to Koreans and Japanese people, it would it would seem almost in, entirely in the frame of reference of how they already denominate things. But the cool thing about having the cents increment is that for uh, Western denominated currencies, you still have that parameter there. So it feels comfortable, but it's so de minimis that you could just entirely ignore it if you don't want it to be there. And then as Bitcoin grows, it would truly have to hit sort of an absurdist amount of money where we would have to increment down past bit cents. I can validate what, what Jonathan is talking about in terms of not having the experience of the Japanese or Korean, but having the experience of this exact transition. Uh, when I grew up in Greece, we used drachmas. 
and drachmas were denominated in such a way that to fill up a tank of gas was you know 500 or 1000 drachmas to buy a cup of coffee was 120 drachmas or to buy a, a burger or something like that and i may be wrong about the exact denominations because i was a kid so everything seemed incredibly enormous amounts of money but it was around that so the smallest unit which was a drachma couldn't buy anything really and you talked in thousands of drachmas if you wanted to buy a car it might be half a million drachmas then we switched to the euro. And what's really interesting about that is that suddenly we had this unit of account that was much, much smaller. So that created an immediate jump in inflation. So people rounded up. So things that used to cost, I don't know, 30 euro cents, they just got rounded up to half a euro. Things that cost 70 euro cents got rounded up to a euro. And people felt like it was less, so they didn't immediately appreciate this inflation that was happening. So it caused immediately about 10 or 15 percent inflation in prices all across Greece with the transition to the euro. Andreas, do you think that could happen with the transition to sort of like layer two solutions with like Lightning Network? Not necessarily, because the unit of account in Lightning is, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a thousandth of a Satoshi. So the units of account in Lightning is even smaller. So you end up talking of sending 100, 000, 100 kilo Satoshis or 1,000 kilo Satoshis. So no, I don't think that it's the exact opposite effect. It has a deflationary effect. All of the amounts seem bigger to you. Yeah, I I know it's the opposite effect, but just, you know, a similar kind of, I guess, like psychological <laughs> change when the, the units of account change, the value, the prices of things could also be shifting. Well, Stephanie, to support the sort of conversation, a very interesting point that addresses this is if you look at the waxing and waning between how many tokens a protocol launches in its ecosystem. So in the Bitcoin days, we had 20 million. And then all of these altcoins listed these large increments where their tokens were denominated by Satoshi values. And then people went to small incremented basis. So then Ethereum set their token to be about 20 cents or 30 cents. And now people are going back to the billion tokens in issuance. I've had conversations with people where they go, when do you think Ripple will hit $5? Or hit three dollars. It's like, do you not understand? There's like a hundred billion <laughs> in circulation. These conversations of like, how many increments in the supply should you have, and what should be sort of the resistance between how people perceive what one singular token should be worth, has been flourishing. And it's weird to see the differences between protocols when they set something high or low. If you, if you go to the top ten tokens and coin market cap, you'll see like a fundamental distinction between token or protocols that have 20 to 100 million tokens and those that have billions or quadrillions of tokens. It's this this fundamental notion of like, do you want your tokens to be so small that people are asking when it's going to go to a dollar? Or do you want it to be like worth thousands of dollars and people treat it like a Berkshire Hathaway stock? And the best part about this BIP is that it's actually a good name. Previous attempts to standardize smaller denominations of Bitcoin, I've always had a really hard time with because they've been focused on, you know, like scientific names, right? Like Millibitcoin is the thing we've talked about a bunch of times, but there was also Microbitcoin and there was also a, a sort of proposal called Tonals. Oh, yeah. Americans can't get down with Milla and Micro. <laughs> it's just not not doing it for me. So I like bits, bits, bits and 100 Satoshis. That's a really strong attempt to solve this problem, at least in a temporary way. Now, the question, Mark, is, you know, this actually was codified in December. And as far as I can tell, 
I, I don't actually know of any wallets that use the bits denomination to represent a hundred satoshis. Uh, a lot of them do. So you you can find you can denominate in bits. Uh, I believe in Samurai, in Copay, Cream Wallet. I thought Copay used millibits. They 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 have an option to use millibits or bits. Oh, cool! So you can choose between Bitcoin, millibitcoin, and bits. I think it's been fairly popular. You can, bits is not a new proposal. Bits was first proposed by BitPay more than two years ago as a denomination, and they put it in the Copay wallet more than two years ago. Now it's just been standardized as a BIP. And so you can find support for that. The the question, and to me, I think this is a real mark of implementation is what is the default unit when you first open your wallet? It, nothing's going to change if the default unit is Bitcoin. You have to get it so that the default unit in every wallet, whenever you open it, is bits. And so people become very accustomed to that unit and stop talking about Bitcoin as a unit. So the way that you would need that to occur is then to start getting exchanges to list the pairing, not in BTC, but in bits. And then I think you'll see a lot of the resistance to anchoring to a Bitcoin sort of transitioning, which would be very weird to see what that would do to the price of Bitcoin, just changing the denomination from a full Bitcoin to a bit in the trade pair. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show is sponsored by EasyDNS.com. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine, with the BIP topic suggested by and research provided by Job. If you contacted me about doing research for the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, as I requested last time, and I haven't gotten back to you yet or haven't responded to what you submitted, don't take that personally. I'm a little bit overwhelmed, but I'm going to get to everybody. <laughs> Music for episode 372 was provided by Jared Rubens. And this episode was edited by both Matthew Zipkin and Adam Levine. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.